You are now dismissed to teach me to worship. As has become our custom, if you are able and willing, please stand for the reading of the holy and errant word of God. From Micah chapter 6. Hear now the word. Hear what the Lord says. Arise, plead your case before the mountains, and let the hills hear your voice. Hear you, hear you mountains, the indictment of the Lord, and your enduring foundations of the earth. For the Lord has an indictment against his people, and he will contend with Israel. O oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. For I brought you up out of the land of Egypt, and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses, Aaron, and Miriam. O oh, my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and how Balaam, the son of Baor, answered him. And what happened in Shittim and Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. With what shall I come before the Lord, and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with, a calf, with calves a year old? With, will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with, with your God? The voice of the Lord cries to the city, and it, is a sound, and it is sound wisdom to fear your name. Hear of the rod of him who has appointed it. Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked, the scant measure that is accused? Shall I quit the man with the wicked scales and with bags of deceitful weights? You rich men are full of violence. Your inhabitants speak lies, and their tongues of is deceitful in their mouth. Therefore, I strike you with a grievous blow, making you desolate because of your sins. You shall eat, but you not, shall not be satisfied, and there shall be hunger within you, and you shall put away, but not preserve. And what you preserve, I will give to the sword. You shall sow, but not reap. You shall tread olives, but not anoint yourselves with oil. You shall tread grapes, but not drink wine. For you have kept the statutes of Omri. And all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels, that I may make you a desolation, and your inhabitants a hissing, so you shall bear the scorn of my people. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Please pray with me. Father, please plant your word deep into our hearts. Lord, transform us into the image of Christ, your Son, who has taken upon himself all our sin so that we might walk in newness of life. Father, help us this morning. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I came to Micah 6, I found myself asking some questions. And as I've pointed out many times, throughout Micah 6, there are three main cycles in this book. 
And I, I don't tell you this so that you have something to talk about at the water cooler at work. I tell you this because it's integral for us to understand the book of Micah and about God himself. The first cycle is chapters 1 and 2. The second is chapters 3 through 5. And here in chapter 6, we begin the third cycle, and it will end with the conclusion of the book. But each cycle, I don't know if, if you've noticed this, but it begins with this call to hear in Micah 1, 2, hear you peoples, all of you. In Micah 3, 1, and I said, hear you heads of Jacob and rulers of the house of Israel. And here in Micah 6, 1, hear the Lord says. And it's important for us to understand about these three cycles. As we saw in cycle 1, in chapters 1 and 2, it's a lengthy prophecy of judgment. Almost the entire two chapters, God condemns all people for their continuing in sin. In that judgment, Micah illustriously shows the cataclysmic action of what happens when God comes to deal with sin. God cannot tolerate false gods. God cannot tolerate false worship by his people or by any people. God drew the proverbial line in the sand. But if you remember in chapters 1 and 2, or in chapters 1, there was no word of hope. There was nothing that ended that chapter to give his people joy. There was no reprieve from the righteous indignation of a God who hates sin. But do you remember what there was? It wasn't what we heard, it was what we saw. How did God reveal his grace to his people? He sent them a prophet. He sent a prophet to reveal to them who he was. A God that comes to sinners. A God that doesn't leave his people where their sins deserve. He sent a prophet to reveal his anger towards sin, but he sent a prophet to reveal to them, I have not given up on you. And by sending a prophet, God revealed he was still working on them and in them. He was seeking them, molding them, sanctifying them through the prophet. And we said this should cause all of God's people to examine their lives and to assess their hearts. For when we witness the gracious acts of God on our behalf, we should do nothing other than to repent and follow by faith. During this first cycle, it wasn't until the end of chapter 2 that we saw just how how God said he would graciously save his people through the Messiah. Because you know someone by what they do, not just by what they say. And then we started cycle two. And again, we heard God's judgment of sin and evil. Regardless of who commits it, God stands opposed to evil. He stands opposed to injustice. 
and we witnessed his people. His people had become so accustomed to their evil that their hearts had been so inundated by their sin, specifically their leaders, their kings, their prophets, and their priests. They had become so overcome that they had become pure evil. And this is the definition of pure evil. Pure evil is when you think you're doing something that is good, but in fact you're doing something that's evil. Pure evil is when people become so upside down, they actually think they're applying flourishing and good, that they're conscious, but their conscience is so lost that they're actually bringing death and destruction. We see this in something like the Holocaust of World War II. The, the soldiers who thought they were just simply obeying orders, they thought that they were doing good, were in fact committing some of the most heinous crimes of all of history. Evil had so blinded them that they actually thought they were promoting human flourishing. But instead, they were causing death and destruction. And the same is true for God's people. These people in Micah, they believed that their deeds would lead to God providing them peace. That's what they said in chapter 3, verse 5. They believed that they were truly living in God's covenant and would receive all of his blessings because of their faithfulness. But instead, God revealed that they were evil to the core. And he promised them justice. He promised them that he would bring justice upon them. But do you remember what he also promised them? A people who, was, who were pure evil. He promised that if they turned from their evil and repented of their ways, he would save them that he would purify them, that he would do for them what they could not do for themselves. He would cleanse them from their sin within, from its guilt and its power, and he would place a Messiah within their midst and that they would be so close to him, so united to him, that he would cleanse them and make them a new people. This is how Chapter 5 ended. God's divine work for his people and in his people. He promised a sinful and corrupt people grace. You know someone by what they do. And so we come to chapter 6. And I ask myself, Ask, I found myself asking these questions. Why another cycle? Right? It's not just a literary form. Why another cycle? Why another cycle of promising judgment against sin and also promising unmerited grace? Why another cycle? Why, after continually promising judgment, had nobody changed? Why, after seeing what these people are truly like, what these people truly do, why come to them again and offer them another chance? 
But then I had to step back and I said, do I really need to ask that question? Is it really that hard to believe? Because isn't this what's true about our stories? When we look at our own lives, if it's, if it's the past week, the past days, maybe just the past hours, how long has it taken us from hearing of God's condemnation of sin before we run right back into it, harboring it in our hearts? How long does it take for us from hearing what the Lord wants for us, what type of lives he wants us to live, what types of thoughts he wants us to think, what type of things he wants us to believe? does it take before we go back to worshiping the same gods we did before? How many of us, after hearing God's call to holiness, did we sin before the day was over? How many of us, after hearing God's call to repentance, did we try to hide sin within us and not let its face be known? How many of us, after hearing the glorious promise of the city that God is trying to build within us and through us, didn't moments later break our vows and be an unfaithful people? Sometimes it can be really hard to associate with people like that, with those type of people who just seem like they're stuck in their sin, people unwilling to fear the Lord. Why is it so hard because we're following our hearts because you know someone by what they do why is it so hard that our heart continues to desire what the lord forbids because this is what sin does Sin manifests itself in our lives so that we can look at others who break God's law and say in our own hearts, how could you do that by the exact same breath, conceal our own sin, overlook our sin, minimize it, even deny it, or worse, cause us to do something that we think is good but is actually evil. Because we love it. Brothers and sisters, if you don't see yourself in need of the same divine unmerited grace that the people of Micah needed, your sin has deceived you. Its power has overwhelmed you. It has done to you what it did to the people in Micah's day. And brothers and sisters, may we never be a people. May we never be a church who stand with our arms crossed and look at those people who are constant in their sin, who can't seem to get their life together, who can't just be better. Because then we forget what's true about our stories. That we too are a people needing God to act on our behalf. That we too are people that come to him continually, week after week after week, and he offers us his grace, doing for us what we cannot do ourselves, calling us to repentance and to walk by faith. And yet we fall away again 
and again. Do you know why God comes to his people a third time? Because that's what they need. And that's what we need. Brothers and sisters, we have no hope outside of Jesus. Because while we were still sinners, while we were those people out there, Jesus came to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. May we never be a people who forget the gospel. Which reveals who we truly are. May we never forget our need for Jesus. Hasn't the story of Micah been an eerily similar story? Because our need was their need. A great God who loved them and who always went after them. This is who God is. He reveals who he is by what he does. He loves you. That's why he comes after you. Because he loves you. And this is what brings us to this text in chapter 6. We're just now starting the text. Let's go. But notice what's happened. This is the truth. God's coming to them for the third time through this prophet. And this is what's happening to them. Hear hear what's happening in verse 3. Oh, my people, what have I done to you? How have I wearied you? Answer me. Do you hear it? Israel has fallen so far into their sin. They're actually accusing God for the way that they are. To weary someone's soul is to try their patience by failing to perform what you've promised. This is what Israel is accusing Yahweh of doing. And to this accusation, the Lord protests. This is what he does in verses 1 to 2. He calls the mountains, the foundations of the earth, to hear the indictment that he has for Israel. It's as if God is saying, if only the walls could talk. Children, do you know what that means? If only, see, all of you have video cameras in your house, and everything's just recorded. It's as if God is taking all of the recorded footage and saying, if I could show you everything that I've done for you, you would hear this indictment. If the mountains could talk, this is the story that they would tell. And then he says, verses 4 through 5, For I brought you up for the land of Egypt and redeemed you from the house of slavery. And I sent before you Moses and Aaron and Miriam. O my people, remember what Balak, king of Moab, devised, and what Balaam, the son of Beor, answered him, and what happened is to team to Gilgal, that you may know the righteous acts of the Lord. He is telling Israel their true story. He had done all of these things so they might know his righteous acts because you know about people by what they do. He lists five demonstrations 
of divine grace. He brought them up out of the land of Egypt. He redeemed them from slavery, and he sent them Aaron, Moses, and Miriam. These three acts are some of the great, is the greatest manifestation of grace in all of the Old Testament. But listen to what he also calls them. In both in verses 3 and 4, he says, Oh, my people. It was because of the Exodus that he established them as his people. He constituted them after these actions and wondrous works that he performed. He remembered his promises to their forefathers and he saved them. But there's more. God also reminds them of the display of grace through the frustration of the plan of the Moabite king Balak, who hired Balaam to put a curse on Israel. But what did the Lord do? He reversed the curse and he made it a blessing for his people. And the fifth remembrance of God's grace was all the actions that he took between the time of Shittim, Israel's last place beyond the Jordan, and Gilgal the first place when they came into Canaan, where Israel apostatized, but the Lord redeemed them. Where they were in the wilderness, this new generation was circumcised before they went into the land, receiving all of the benefits of his covenant promises. This is their history. God saved them by grace. God recounted his faithfulness to them. He's retelling them their story because they had forgotten who they were. These were the stories that they were supposed to tell. Exodus 12 mandates, when you celebrate the Passover, tell these stories. These stories that God had saved his people. They're like the stories that we tell as families every time we're together. The stories we laugh about all the time because they're our stories. In telling these stories, God is reminding Israel who the faithful one was in the story. It was the Lord. He had never done anything to harm them. He had only continually conferred benefits from the covenant on a faithless people. Who is a God like Yahweh? No one. No one is as faithful as Yahweh. Micah reveals just how important it is to remember the past. Because remembering the past prepares us for where we are and for where we are going. God's people had forgotten his great acts of redemption and, and that was directly correlated to their wandering hearts and to their sin. Because how else could they turn to the Lord and say, this is all your fault? God, if it wasn't for you and for all your rules, we wouldn't be like this. Don't you know why we're this way? It's because of you. Like an ungrateful child, blame shifting. 
all of their bad conduct onto their parents, like an ungrateful employee who blames their employer for all their actions. Israel's looking into the face of God and giving him the double bird. It's because of you. I am like this. And so Micah speaks for the people. as though the demands of God had been so high that they cannot continue to do them. He poses these four questions in verses 6 to 7. With what shall I come before the Lord and how and bow myself before on high? He gives them three ways. Shall I come before him with burnt offerings with the calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with the thousands of rams or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? These each build in their extreme examples of how Israel can appease God. And their response indicates that they believe that the Lord requires too much of them. But here when I say this, in response to each of these questions, the answer is no. To, to the last three questions, the answer is unequivocally no. But, but, but listen to what I'm about to say. Shall I bring a burnt offering? Well, the answer is yes, but no. Should I bring 10,000 rams? Yes, but no. Should I bring 10,000 rivers of oil? Yes, but no. Shall I bring my firstborn for my transgression? Yes, but no. No, the Lord doesn't want your firstborn. No, the Lord doesn't want 10,000 rivers of oil. No, he doesn't want any of that. If that is all that he gets, what he wants is your heart to be circumcised and to follow by faith. All of the sacrificial system was set up to establish a relationship with their God. Yes, he wants those things, but he wants those, what those things represent. A heart of gratitude. A heart longing to be with the Lord. He wants Israel to offer sacrifices only if those sacrifices reveal the true reality of their heart. This is why Amos can say, even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. In a peace offering of your fattened calves, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs and the melody of your harps. I will not listen. Because they didn't come with, to him with a heart that desired him. They were merely going through the motions. And to these three questions, the Lord gives them three things. I have told you, O man, what is good. I have told you, this isn't new. They've received all of this way back in Deuteronomy 10. If they had just remembered who they were, they would remember these three things. What does the Lord require? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. He requires his people to look like him. 
holy like him, just like him, full of hesed love, to be full with God himself, to love like him, to see people like he sees people. He wants them to act according to the new heart that he has given them. Their desire was to offer sacrifices that none of them could afford. Every commentator said this. These rams and these 10,000 rivers of oil, not even the king could offer such a great sacrifice. But what they were trying to offer reflect that they had completely missed the unmerited grace of God's acts for them. They were his people. He required nothing of them but to follow by faith. To do justice is to act according to who you are. To do justice, to love mercy. These are probably the most quoted verses we've seen in the past years. We've seen them written on poster boards demanding justice. And we should, because God demands justice. But in the context of Micah, he demands justice for those who have been marginalized and taken advantage of by the people who were supposed to be caring for them. This is what he says in verses 10 to 12. They have been taken advantage of by the rich and the wealthy. This is what we saw in, verse, in chapters four, 3 and 4. They had been taken advantage of by their own leaders. And the Lord asks for justice because that is who he is. But the Lord did not require justice just for justice's sake. He wants more. Biblical justice can only flow out of a heart that has been changed by the love of God himself. Biblical mercy can only be embodied by someone who knows Yahweh as their Savior. And here's what all the, none of the posters, well, none of the posters that I saw, here's what none of the posters actually said to do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly before your God. As one commentator puts it, to walk with God is to accept his vision and values for life, to fellowship with him. Thus one does this humbly, recognizing one's place before God on high. To do justice and to love mercy is the complete opposite picture of what God's people had become. They were supposed to walk in the ways of the Lord, but this is his indictment against them in verse 16. You have kept the statutes of Omri and all the house and all the works of the house of Ahab, and you have walked in their counsels. Omri and Ahab do you know what scripture says about Omri? Well, because you've read 1 Kings 16 recently, I'm, I'm sure you do. This is what 1 Kings 16.25 says of Omri. Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, 
and did more evil than all who were before him. And this is what Scripture says about Ahab, his son. Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than anyone who had come before him. And then later in, verse, in chapter 16, verse 33 says, And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings in Israel who were before him. This is who the people were embodying. People who did evil in the sight of the Lord. The people were doing the exact opposite of what God had called them to do. You know people by what they do. Sometimes we think all that is required of us is to say a sinner's prayer. A one-time commitment to the Lord at some point in our lives. Maybe we make a large contribution to a capital campaign. Maybe we offer just a few hours of volunteer work at VBS. Maybe we offer just an hour and 40 minutes to come to church. Do you know what the Lord requires of you? To love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. If you do those things, you will do justice and love mercy. Do you know why the Lord requires this of you? Because this is what he did for his people in Egypt. This is what he did for them with Balak, the king of Moab. This is what he did for them when they were in Shittim and Gilgal. And this is what he did in Jesus. He came to a people whose situation was messed up. It was hard and it was difficult. And the Lord went in to them to save them from themselves. He showed no partiality. He took no bribe. He executed justice because he loved to do the Father's will. Do you know what the Lord requires of you? To look to Jesus. Because you know, you know what these, these laws and demands should cause us to do? It should cause us to fall to our knees and say, we have no hope. We cannot do this. We need Jesus. And this is exactly what Jesus does. He did it because we couldn't. He fulfilled all of our obligations to the covenant. He circumcised our hearts and drew us to himself Brothers and sisters, there's no one in this room who has not been swept into the story of God's redeeming love by anything other than his unmerited grace. We were the exact opposite. And this is precisely why God came to us and called us out of that life and into new life in Christ 
And this is what we do when we come to the Lord's table. What does Paul say in 1 Corinthians 11? He says, I I have received what I also delivered to you, that the night that the Lord Jesus was betrayed. He's retelling the story. He's retelling the story of how Jesus accomplished everything that his people needed. That he did for them what they could not do for themselves. Jesus came for us. He did for us what the Lord required so that we might walk blamelessly before him. And he delighted not only in doing the Lord's will, he delights in you because he loves you. Micah 6 contrasts every part of our lives, but it points us to Jesus. We can't meet this expectation. And before I end, there is a promise of cursing. This is what Micah says in verses 13 to 15. If you continue in your ways and do not repent, you will receive the cursings of the covenant. You will be cut off. Everything will be desolate. You will receive the opposite of Eden, what God had designed you for. But he still sends his word to the city. Because he hasn't given up on his people. Come to Jesus. He has fulfilled the law's demands on your behalf. There is nothing that you bring except coming by faith. Come to Jesus. He is our hope. He is our joy. He is our new life. Walk before Jesus. Amen. Let us pray. Father, rid rid us of our hardened hearts. Continually remind us of the grace that you have given us in Christ. Show us Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. If you'll please stand and turn your Trinity hymnal to page 465. That's not right. 864. (laughs) 846. As we say the Nicene Creed. Christian, what do you believe?
You may be seated. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, after supper, he took the cup. And after giving thanks, he said, This cup is the new covenant of my blood, which is given for sinners. Drink of it, all of you, in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Jesus instituted this supper as the new covenant meal. This is where we tell our stories of how we were saved by the blood of Jesus. This supper is the gospel in physical form. It applies the truth that those who are outside of Christ have no salvation except through his body and blood and resurrection. We believe that the bread remains bread and the wine remains wine. But we believe that the promise is so united to the reality that we feast on Christ by faith and that we are nourished by him. This meal is a foretaste, an anticipation of the consummation. When Jesus returns and we will no longer take little bites of bread or little sips of wine, we will celebrate the wedding feast of the Lamb. This table is not a Presbyterian table. It is the Lord's table. If you have been baptized and professed faith in Christ, this table is for you. If you have not believed, if you have not repented of your sin, I ask of you, please do not partake of these elements, for you will drink condemnation upon yourself. But I ask you, participate with us by asking the Holy Spirit to give you a new heart and to see Jesus. This warning is not aimed to keep the humble and the contrite from this table. The benefits of this meal do not depend upon how you feel this morning. The benefits of this meal depend upon Christ and his resurrection from the dead. We come actively partaking of God's unmerited grace for us in Christ. Let us pray together. Holy Father, take these things that are common and make them uncommon. Set apart the ordinary for the extraordinary. Prepare us for the sacred event. May it indeed be an effective means of your grace for our salvation. We ask this through the name of your mediator of the new covenant, Jesus Christ, your only Son, our Lord. Amen. Jesus said, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. The invitation is to come.